Hello, and welcome back to the Cave Escape podcast. I'm Caleb Groves. And I'm Ashton Goolsby. Last time, we talked about the quadrivium and how these are the scientific arts, uh, just like the trivium are the language arts. And we talked about arithmetic and geometry and the importance of teaching those in such a way as to lead the students to discovery of actually understanding the principles taught rather than just memorizing mathematical facts they actually learn like what two is and how what it means that you add two to two and you get four teaching them to discover that for themselves and then the same thing with astronomy and music working through the history of science and the history of astronomy and how we got to where we are and studying the different models that people studied or created uh, over time in order to more fully understand how we got to where we are and then how all of these arts are also a study of the order and proportionality that is in creation that is reflective of the order that is in God. And today we're moving on to something that's very related, natural philosophy, which is in a sense equivalent to natural science, mm. but in a different sense of natural science than I think most people think of it today. Yeah, definitely. They start off first, though, just talking about philosophy in general. That's right. Because um, he argues, he says, we've kind of forgotten what philosophy means. Mm-hmm. So what we think of as philosophy today, that somebody might go study in a university, is not what the Greeks traditionally understood philosophy as. Yes. So he starts off by making the point that he said, philosophy is the combination of two Greek words, uh, philia, which is love like a brotherly kind of love and sophia which is wisdom Mm -hmm. so you've got this love of wisdom is what you're studying so it's not it's not just a pursuit of well these these are the things that are true and i want to have them it's it's a desire to have them out of of a love for those things themselves right and i thought it was super cool the way they like posed it as a seeming paradox, at least a paradox, it would seem a paradox to our modern minds of they're holding together these two things that we normally separate being the subjective quality of love, but then also this, like we often objectify the idea of truth and like treat it as just Mm. like an objective thing, which I mean it is, but they're holding those things together at the same time, the subjective and the objective which I thought was fascinating the way that they phrased that. And they even say that it is not enough to merely possess wisdom as if one could in fact possess knowledge purely objectively or dispassionately. One must actually love it and pursue it from the soul. Mm. And I just thought that was super interesting that they state that you can't just merely like have knowledge and not have any feeling or like not have it affect you in Mm. some way. I find that interesting tying in with the idea of we've got the internet and we've got so much knowledge at our fingertips, but unless, unless what we're studying and learning is somehow part of us inwardly, Mm -hmm. we we can't achieve this realm of of wisdom. The things we learn, it's mere fact is not enough to get us there. It's it's this Sophia, this wisdom that needs to be ingrained in our, in our souls. Mm -hmm. And part of the way you do that is by, kind of like what we were just saying 
last time is the discovery of mm-hmm. working through it. And that's something that we'll talk about this this time too. I, I do also love that they say here, um, philosophy then was founded from the beginning by the conviction that knowledge is not about power, but about truth. So t- tying it into, again, it's this, this love of, of wisdom, but wisdom is grounded in what is true. Right. So to, to be truly wise, you have to know what is truth and how to how to find it and to be able to distinguish truth from falsehood right but it's it's not in a it's not in a sense of well now i have power over this i have power over this because i know what truth is it's it's just from a desire just to know truth and to know what is true not not so you can wield some kind of power over what you discovered but mm-hmm. because you want to live in accordance with with reality which is christians we would say is the created reality which is something that they go on to show through even a lot of the people we might consider modern scientists like uh again like kepler and galileo and Mm -hmm. einstein and newton and stuff further on showing how even their thinking was influenced by this idea yeah Mm -hmm. like like uh newton's book that he wrote that i'm completely blanking on the name but it was like principles of it wasn't it wasn't principles of science it was principles of natural philosophy mm-hmm. that's roughly what the name is i can't remember yeah. the actual name <laughs> is, but it's something it like that <laughs> names are not my strong point <laughs> uh, oh it's right there i was totally right oh mathematical principles oh yeah it wasn't mathematical principles of science mathematical principles of natural philosophy yeah well because they also they also point out that um the three branches of philosophy mm-hmm. were initially or not natural philosophy at least is what we now would label science right but before it was not understood as science it was philosophy yeah all the way up through like the 17th yeah. century Qu- quite or right now 19 you think about it 1800s yeah i forget which way <laughs> to take the one the 19th century <laughs> but that's pretty recent yeah people people still crazy. thought of it as this philosophical act yeah and science was meant something different mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's been shocking me a lot reading this book is how recent these ideas were abandoned yeah like the fact that we actually still studied the liberal arts like this all the way up through like the 1700s mm-hmm. and kind of into the 1800s and mm-hmm. called it philosophy and like they were studying euclid still in the 1800s yeah and because the way that we talk about these kinds of things now makes them feel like they're super way outdated mm-hmm. by like hundreds of years, but they're really not. Well, my dad shared a quote with me recently. It was, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was basically Abe Lincoln talking about, because he was pretty much self-educated. Mm-hmm. One of the books that he read, that he worked through himself, that he loved and said was like one of the foundations of his education was Euclid's Elements. Yeah. And we don't, we don't teach that book anymore, mm-hmm. but... Even that recently, one of our presidents saying, this is a very important book. This was fundamental to my education, my life in general. Right. And now we've disregarded it as, eh, Euclid's not right. that important. We don't have to teach it anymore. Mm-hmm. Just well, clearly the he, fact that it was like the basis of everything. <laughs> yeah, but like he went on to be a, a politician, president, whatever. Yeah, lawyer. But still, even after that, was saying, yeah, this, this greatly influenced me. Mm-hmm. It's not a political work at all. No. But he's still 
there was more to his life than just that as he saw it. Yeah. That's super cool. So they they say there there's three kinds of philosophy. We've got divine philosophy, oh, yeah. uh, which is also called metaphysics, mm-hmm. and then and then moral philosophy and natural philosophy. Oh yeah, <laughs> I see him now. <laughs> <laughs> and and they they talk about those being the uh, the threefold entirety of creation. I don't know that's kind of a weird way to put that, but like you have God, study of God would fall under divine philosophy or like kind of metaphysics, spiritual realm. And then natural philosophy is study of God's creation. And then moral philosophy is study of like humans and mm-hmm. like relationships. It's like, it would now be called social studies is what essentially yeah. social, the social sciences, humanities and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not humanities, I think. Yeah, but they, they, they just say social sciences. Yeah, but they do say social sciences. So I've always been confused. Social science, is that like, what we call history? I don't actually know, because I didn't actually take that <laughs> class, because, you know, I was classically homeschooled. So <laughs> I've always actually been confused about what social sciences actually are. I think, okay, ec- uh, economics falls under social sciences. Oh, okay. Economics and uh, other things like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know. We will dig into that more sometime. Yes, probably <laughs> next time (laughs) Uh, but for today we were focusing primarily on natural philosophy yes and so this section begins with a quote from Werner Heisenberg which I also thought he's one of those modern scientists who is kind of using utilizing the more of the actual tradition of like natural philosophy rather than science Uh, in this quote I was coming to the increasing conclusion that I could make no more progress in contemporary physics without a deeper knowledge of Greek natural philosophy and so just kind of reiterating what we said before, it's just really cool that there's like modern, like like quantum physicist, scientist people who are like, yeah, it's actually really important that we understand this and study this this yeah. way. <laughs> well, I also like they had this quote down here, which it, it kind of caught me off guard. And I would want to look more at their footnote here. But it says, as it turns out, not all scientists agree that the scientific method is ulti- the ultimate test of what defines real science. Yeah. Many of the greatest scientists made their breakthroughs without reference to this method and in a manner that might even have been considered heterodox to the scientific method. Which is funny because from elementary school, you're like, scientific method, scientific method. It's, right. You, you have to follow this method and then just saying, you know, not, not, everybody, not everybody agrees that that's the way to go about solving, right. resolving a issue or a question about something yeah and, and the footnote with it al- that being... it almost seems like heresy to say that <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and like the footnote that they had on that by uh steven weinberg uh he kind of like says something like that he says we do not have a fixed scientific method to rally around and defend which is just it is crazy because we're taught that like science is the objective way to get to objective fact yeah, but the fact is that the method keeps changing, mm-hmm. and and the standards of how we actually interpret the facts and the standard of like what actually counts as this is what most accurately describes reality, kind of like the standard mm-hmm. that just shifts over time. And if that's shifting and the methods are shifting, then it can't actually be objective. Yeah, well, it's also it drives me crazy when people say trust the science, trust the science. 
but science is constantly changing. Right. Our understanding of what something is based off of different tests, our, our knowledge of different things grows over time, but even the way that we go about agreeing to do tests or to study different things, even the big, where we begin to study things like that changes so much. We, we have to have reality based off of something other than just science. Right. Because there's also, as far as you can do a test and the people can disagree on the results of the test. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I want to talk about too, a little bit or at least touch on briefly the, they talk about the Greek word episteme. Uh, which is often translated as demonstrable knowledge to emphasize the justification that distinguishes it from mere opinion. Which I thought it was cool. They come back to that idea of justification of knowledge, which is something we talked about last time too. Mm. Uh, but then, so they, they even, I mean, they talk about that. Remember that it is the liberal arts that are used to discover and justify knowledge. And that is why they need to be studied before natural philosophy and natural science. Mm-hmm. They're needed to demonstrate or prove the knowledge. So you take, the liberal arts and you study these things this is what these are the truths about arithmetic and geometry mm-hmm. and astronomy and music and then once you have those truths and you have the logic and you're able to work through them and kind of demonstrate and justify why they're real then you can move on to like more broadly the natural sciences or natural philosophy and then work your way through it and justify it with the things that you've studied previously. Yeah. And kind of the foundational things. Yeah, you've got to you got to begin from somewhere to do philosophy. Right. Which is also why I, I can't remember I think it was Mr. Spun told us at some point philosophy was not something that you typically just jumped right into. It was something and they kind of talk about it in here. It was something you had to build up to and I, I, was it I think I remember somebody saying it was at one point you weren't supposed to do philosophy till you were like 30 maybe. I don't, I don't oh. have an exact age on that. Right. But there, there was like an, an age before which, I think, I can't remember if it was Plato or Aristotle, was like, yeah, you don't need to do philosophy before this. Because mm-hmm. until then, you got to work on the other stuff, and you're not mentally ready. Yeah, I think I think in this in this section, they talked about, I think, Plato's like educational system or paradigm or whatever ended mm-hmm. when you're like 50. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but His I think education I think, went much longer than we we're like, yeah, you're 18, you're educated now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause also his education was for the purpose of governing the polis, the city. Yeah. And so he, he was like, this is the education that will create a good and virtuous man who will be able to lead the city. Well, kind of, yeah. Which in that sense makes sense. Cause we have like an age minimum for the president. I don't remember what it is. It's like, it's it's like at least 40, right? I think so. I, have, I, I, I actually have no idea. I, I used to know, and actually I'm blanking right now. I don't remember. Oh, dang. <laughs> this makes um, us sound really smart. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. We're, we're not smart. We're still in the cave, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was something else I was going to say with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But even, I think I think in the book when they, when they said that thing, they said that, they still like started philosophy or at least like the beginnings of it, like before you're 20. Yeah. And so it is still like way later, but like, that's just the beginning. And that was, that was one of the quotes I think like later towards the end where they're talking more like practically. And they talked about, we need to teach philosophy in this way 
and stop just having students study just the principles by themselves without actually working through everything. And also for sure, not like we need to stop not telling them that this is just the beginning. Cause that was kind of what you were saying. Like now we're like 18, you're educated, go off into the world. <laughs> and Plato's like, no, you still have 30 years left. Mm. And so, because it is, cause you can't actually get through all of it. Like people graduate yeah. college and they tend like, I feel like at that point you feel like you're like sufficiently, I mean, okay. In a sense you are sufficiently educated, but you, you graduate college and you don't realize how much I think you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was one thing I remember my dad telling me when I was starting college, I was just like, I'm realizing other things I don't know. And he said, the more you learn, the more you will realize how much you don't know, mm-hmm. which is one thing, the school that I teach at their, um, get motto, Motto, I guess, isn't quite the right word. Slow, but, not slogan. Uh, I think mission mission yeah, statement. Yeah, it's um, creating lifelong learners for the kingdom of God. Right. So yeah. it's this idea of, and they have um, they have a readathon every Christmas break. It'll start like the week before and go to the week after. But it's the goal of it is who who can read the most pages. So it's a competition to see who can read the most. But the purpose behind it is to teach them to love reading, mm-hmm. to get them excited about reading. So that when they're not actively in school, they're doing, they're learning things. Right. So they're doing something with their time to build themselves up towards something, toward a knowledge of something else. Yeah. But I feel like that ties in here with this, this love of, this love of wisdom. We're Mm -hmm. teaching them to just have this unquenchable desire for knowledge. They need they need to go what what do people say on this what 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 is true what what is true about this what do i like about this one what do i not like about this other one and that'll come with time but first they have to they have to love the process of searching and finding the knowledge and asking these questions yeah. will come later mm-hmm. and then speaking of reading books and loving books he jumps right here into talking about Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love talking about Tolkien and especially related to things like this. But he makes the whole the whole uh, comparison between the elves and the orcs. He says the elves produce beautiful architecture, powerful weapons, and useful artifacts in a way that harmonizes with nature. Which I thought was cool because they literally a lot of times make it with song. Right. That's true. And then he says the orcs, on the other hand, were corrupted elves who as slaves to dark wizards had a kind of technology that ravaged the land. Their community was set in such antagonism to nature that they even aroused the wrath of the docile tree creatures, the Ents, to their own doom. Mm-hmm. So you've got, and Tolkien, and he argues that that's kind of an, you can have that as an understanding of Tolkien's world in general, is you've got the elves over here who are the ones who are in harmony with creation and the natural order. And then the orcs who are the anti-elves, they're in active destruction and disorder with everything. And he was saying, we need, we should seek as Christians to be like the elves, to be those who are aligning ourselves and studying the natural order and finding peace and rest just in living harmoniously with what God has made and understanding it. Mm-hmm. That almost sounds like like a hippie kind of 
this be one with nature vibe, but right. understanding it as it's ordered and created by God, and we have a place in it. And so yes. how are we supposed to, as those who are charged to tend and keep the garden, supposed to live mm-hmm. in the world? Yeah. I, I, and then they move on. This This is kind of what I was wanting to get at a little bit. But right here they say, mechanical artifacts were believed to imitate nature. This is originally, uh, according to the ancient thought. They were believed to imitate nature, not the other way around, as in the 17th century mechanical philosophy. In the mechanical philosophy, nature was conceived as analogous to a machine, an artifact made by man, and thus wholly intelligible to him. Mm-hmm. But the ancients were not mechanists. They believe that nature had more wisdom than did the machines made by man. So we've now almost come to perceive that nature is like it's like an internal combustion engine in a car. If I sit and study it long enough and take it apart, I can figure out how it works, and then I know about it, and then I know the thing itself. Yeah. Whereas the ancients were like, no, that's not really how the natural order works. The natural order is something beyond our comprehension, and we can kind of understand it. And the machines that we build find correlation to things in the natural order right because they function inside of it to an extent mm-hmm. well they, to an extent they do function inside of it <laughs> but um, not not the other way around where it's nature is a machine the machines are reflection of yeah. things we find in nature mm. what do you think about it says they believe that nature had more wisdom than did the machines man-made like i think we tend to think of nature as being more basic than technology hmm. and like less than in a sense because there's like there's nature almost like 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 the development of civilization like we think of nature as simple and the things that we've built using it as the complex things yes and complex things hmm. being better and like like if you think of 3000 years ago what a city was like and now we have way more technology and everything's better and we're more civilized. Like that kind of a difference. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what you're saying, like simple to complex. But in reality, it is it is actually the other way around. And like it's impossible for us to create something as complex as the human brain. Oh, yeah. And like we're, we're, we're kind of close. As much as we're trying bit. with AI right, right now. We're pretty close. <laughs> yeah. um, but we're there's always going to be some kind of like, we're never going to be able to, I don't think I don't personally believe that we'll actually be able to attain the complexity of the human brain with technology. I think that we could, I think that we could create a computer that could simulate human thought and like it would, it would be, it could be perceived as human, but it not fully. Like if you like developed a relationship with that AI, you would like, be able to tell that something was off because they're not fully human. But that's even, I was talking to somebody, but they were talking about this, this new AI stuff that people are dealing with now. I haven't, I haven't mm-hmm. looked at it, but he yeah. was saying he, he's done some stuff with it and he has some buddies that have done stuff with it. But they were saying it's, it's almost like that, unca- that uncanny valley effect with art mm. where you look at it and it looks just not quite real. Yeah. It's more realistic. I'm trying to think like if you've seen the Polar Express movie. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they shot for really realistic looking things. And some of it looks really real. But the people, there's something about them that's just not right. Yeah. 
and it makes it really disturbing. Yes. So they said the thing with this AI stuff is it's just, I mean, it's still like commands of yes and no, yes and no, yes and no, yes right. and no. Byron. And it has pre-figured responses. It's got hundreds of thousands of them. Yeah. But it's still, it doesn't understand what it's saying. You've yes. just triggered a response out of it based mm-hmm. off of an algorithm. Right. And so I don't personally believe, like you were saying, I don't think that we can attain something really much more than just that. Yeah. Because I don't think we have the capacity to create consciousness. Right. Because there's that added dimension to the human brain, yeah. the human mind, really. But then, and so, because that's what nature is. Yeah. And nature is actually, it possesses more wisdom mm-hmm. than the machines that are made by man. Yes, and because so that would be an example of what they're saying here. Of the mach- the machines, like the ancients would say, the machines we create follow patterns we see in nature. We can create like Siri. We can talk to Siri to an extent. Right. And that's a reflection of like me talking to you across this room right now. Mm-hmm. But we can't, the higher form is me talking to you, not me talking to my stupid iPhone over here on yeah. the table. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But we've come to see almost the, the flip. And probably not with Siri, but with right. other things we we look at and we just go, well, this is the real thing here. This is the more important thing than just the normal. Which I feel like it's something we kind of got into with with Zoom a little bit. I don't, oh, I don't, interesting. Because we, we, I just had this thought, it may be worth editing out later, but, <laughs> I mean, we've got the technology now where the whole country can shut down, okay, and we can still have meetings and we still have schools and things like that through this environment. And we go, wow, look, we have this cool technology here. Isn't this amazing? It, in a way, transcends normal meaning, says we can do it no matter if we're sick, no matter where we are. But that's, we even recognize as doing it, we hate it. Right. Because it's artificial. It's not real. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that me meeting with you in a room with a bunch of other people is inferior to the other thing and the zoom meeting is higher because it has more capabilities and it's more technologically advanced. Right. It exists as an imitation of the real thing when we can't have the real thing. Yeah. But we've kind of gotten to where we've inverted it. I think that's a really good example of how people kind of have an inherent sense of, of the natural being higher than the technology. Because I think I think in a lot of other places we have entirely switched those, mm-hmm. where we think the te- technology is higher than the nature, but it's interesting that we haven't really in that specific instance, and that's probably because it involves relationship with other people, in a way that a lot of other technology doesn't, and because we're able to feel the difference between actually being in the presence of another human being, and just seeing their face, on a bunch of tiny little light bulbs (laughs) (laughs) but then even like over here at the next page he says talking more about uh, mechanical arts among them are architecture agriculture medicine blacksmithing and trade these common arts were technologies intended to work alongside nature instead of against her and that kind of gets into they talked a little bit about the idea of we view and this is a quote we were talking about earlier when we were setting up but the idea of natural science, or natural philosophy, I should say, wanting to examine 
nature for itself and aligning itself, like we're saying, with the elves aligning themselves with what is the natural order mm-hmm. versus now we tend to view it as more of a, I can take it and make it do what I want. Right. So it's no longer, it's a study of and wonder at the natural order and working with it. It's more of a taking and bending and creating what we want out of it, making it do what we want to do rather yeah. than examining it for its own beauty. Yeah. Like, like we, we study it so that we can manipulate it and yeah. create these technologies and things. And, and I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a wrong thing to do. I think no. we were created to do that. Yeah. But when sure. that becomes the sole purpose and focus of what we do with science, yes, that's we've lost a big part of it. Part of mm-hmm. it is also the, a large part of it is the awe and the beauty that comes from just saying God made this. It's intelligible and I can understand it. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, look, I can also do these other things with it. Yeah. But the point is not, wow, I can take it and I can make whatever I want with mm-hmm. it that's not the point of it yeah it's more they kind of they they rephrased it as like a i can't remember exactly where the quote is but something like submitting to nature mm-hmm. yeah and like creating technologies and things in a kind of submission to nature rather than a dominance over which I thought was a very it was kind of that was kind of an interesting word for them to use I thought anyway because I was a little bit confused about submitting to nature because I still believe that humans are over nature yeah I I read that more of and I guess I'm I'm not wanting to get too political with this but <laughs> <laughs> mainly because I'm not a super politically knowledgeable person right but just thinking about the way we deal with things such as the concept of transgenderism, mm. this this kind of gets, I would think, into the idea of trying to have that domin- domination of it and not submitting to it. We think because I now understand the way certain chemicals work in the body, or we think we do. We increasingly find out how much we don't know. Right. But we think, ah, uh, because I know how this works, I can then manipulate it and I can remake this boy as a girl or vice versa. Oh, yeah. But what we have to submit to is the realization of male and female exist. It's only two options. You are what you were born. Mm-hmm. And so we have to submit to that reality. There's two options. You are what you were made. And that's the end of the, the discussion. Whereas now we think, well, because we understand things and we have this science we can then take it and we can mix it up however we want and build whatever we want out of it. Right. And I, I feel like that was what they were talking about. I mean, correct me on yes. that if I'm... No, no, I think that's a good example of what they were talking about, or at least the way that you phrased it. But I also think, because I've also heard like the argument of, well, there is actually a mental condition of... Gender dysphoria? Yeah, gender dysphoria. Where you actually literally think that you are the opposite sex. Yeah. And it's like a mental condition. Mm-hmm. And the best way that we know how to deal with that condition is to do gender reassignment, I think, is an argument that I have heard. And I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't actually personally know, like, I haven't, like, studied it a lot. So I don't know if there are more successful ways of, like, therapy or counseling or whatever 
and like psychological treatments that you can do to fix that. But they've also found even in those people, I've heard some tests and things that they've said they find that those people afterward they don't get any better. They in fact, after trying to go undergo so-called gender reassignment surgery, they end up getting worse. Oh, interesting. Most of the time, and there, there's tons of cases, and they're usually, for the most part, try try to hush them up. Right. But I was I even saw something come out recently. It's it's it was weird because it was it was a, a I believe she was a lesbian married to a quote unquote transgender man. Mm-hmm. who worked in the gender reassignment facility. And she said they don't talk about the the people who get in the midst of it, the, the immediate problems that occur. It messes up their life. People who then later come back and say, I regret this. I, can I undo it? And they say, we can't really undo it. But the fact that you just realize it's as a attempt to try to put yourself over nature rather than submitting to it. Yeah. You actually end off worse in the end. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot of times the argument people say, is, well, you just don't, if you're, if you're opposing transgenderism or homosexuality, or whatever, you, you're not wanting people to be happy. Well, it's, it's not, not wanting them to be happy. It's wanting them to be happy because coming from an understanding of this, if there is a natural order mm-hmm. then we have to operate inside of it, to try to not operate inside of it and operate on our own rules is ultimately destructive. And as much as we might think it makes us happy, farther down the road, we're going to see the more we push against it, the more unhappy we become. Yeah. And so it's not it's not an argument of, I don't want you to be happy. It's waving a red flag saying, hey, um, people have tried that way. And it doesn't lead where you think it leads. Yeah. Please reconsider and don't come this way. I mean, ultimately, you can keep going if you want, but we're trying to tell you about it. it's not. Yeah, it's not what you think is down that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good example, though, of the consequences of thinking that we can just dominate and use nature mm-hmm. for our own ends, and like use God's creation for our own ends, more specifically, because it is His creation and it's His. Mm-hmm. And it belongs to him, and we belong to him. And so when we try and make it our own and act against his order that he's created and his will in how he wants us to interact with creation, then there are consequences that come with that. I did want to talk, before you jump too far, though, he talks about the, the idea of trying to re- to recover and teach, to teach this. There are several notes I, I found here because again, like I was saying earlier, I'm not a mathematical person or a scientific person, just by nature. But it stud- studying these things has, has made me realize more. I feel like of their their place in education, and I can appreciate them better than I think before. Like I went I went to New College and was made to study them in this super related way. But um, even here, the idea of studying natural philosophy or science, the idea of art crept in but like we used to do like with mr ferris where we would have to do the the drawings of just looking at things and not looking at the paper oh yeah because he says down here in the lower school students can study them the sciences imitatively 
so that when they are older, they will already have an imitative foundation of practice. And the note I put was this. I said, I, said, I need to do more drawing with my fourth grade class. Because it's the mm. idea of learning, not looking to think and going, how can I use that? How can I take that and how can I use it for what I need it to do? But you look at it and you just study it and observe it. Because he talks in that whole paragraph about imitating, imitating these things. He talks later on about taking these. We take a lot of times experiments and we're like, we're going to do this experiment to prove a point. Mm -hmm. But he talks about do the experiment just to see the result of the experiment. Do it just to observe the phenomenon that somebody else has documented because it's a phenomenon that exists in nature and God created it. But he said you learn first and foremost by just imitating others or imitating what you find in nature. So he was saying young students need to just imitate things. And I thought the best way to do that is draw a picture of it. Sit there and look at it and study it and draw it. Even if you're not good at it, you're going to pick up on things and it'll... And you're really crappy drawing. Right. I've got my hand raised. <laughs> yep. it's, it's going to highlight some true thing about the thing that you noticed and observed. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I always hated when my mom made us draw flowers and leaves and stuff when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't even like fully understand, I think, the benefit that I've gotten from that. Yeah. And like actually specifically how that's affected me. And how I mm-hmm. see the world. But I believe that it has affected me in how I see the world. And well, I'm really thankful for that. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember having to draw as a kid. Um, sorry, Dad, if you're listening to this. <laughs> my, dad, my dad's an artist. But um, making us draw things, and I would get super frustrated at it. But then over time realizing, even though I was frustrated because I couldn't make it what I wanted it to be. Yeah. But through that and then further on, like when we had to do it with Mr. Ferris for three hours a day realizing there's something about the way that you look at things that once you've had to draw it or if you've been just drawing repeatedly the way you notice things and look at them is different and i i constantly think i need to get back in to habit of just drawing things because Mm -hmm. i remember that whole year doing that class the different styles that we would draw in i would look at it i would look at it through this lens of how would i draw that and i would sit there and study okay well Okay, but that goes up a little higher than the other thing. Well, that's actually slightly in shadow compared to the other thing. That's actually slightly bigger than I thought it was. Yeah. But it makes you look at something and consider it from multiple different sides, but not not in a way of what can I do with it, just in what is it sort of way, which is why I was thinking it, it sounds to our more modern way of thinking like that's ridiculous. Science, why on earth would you be drawing in science class? But it yeah. is really important. Yeah. Because it helps you to observe what you see and to make right. note of what you're noticing in it. Mm-hmm. But that that was a personal note that I took away from this section. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so before we wrapped up, one last thing I wanted to hit was we, have, we haven't we have yet stated the four causes. Yeah, those um, are super important. <laughs> it's probably important that we go over before we end. <laughs> um, so Aristotle explained that there, there are four different causes in studying philosophy so there's the material cause the formal cause the final cause and the official cause or the efficient cause the material cause asks what is this thing made of or what is its matter 
The formal cause asks, what is the essence or the form of a thing? What is it essentially? Final cause inquires about an object's purpose. What is it for? And the efficient cause answers the question, what made this thing occur? So he uses the example of a marble statue. Right. The material cause is the marble itself, is what it's made of. The formal cause is the shape of the statue that exists in the statue itself, but also in the mind of the sculptor beforehand. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. The final cause is to delight an audience in the garden where it's placed. And the efficient cause is the sculptor who chiseled it. Right. So he said these are the four causes of a thing. So when you're studying natural science, you want to try to understand all four of them. What is it made of? What is it made for? Uh, what is it like? And then wh where did it come from? And to do that, you've you've pretty much en encompassed all there is to know about the thing, if you can understand yeah. all four of those things. Uh -huh. But then he talks about how in modern science, we've completely done away with formal cause and final cause. Yeah. And like right here, it says... Uh, Contemporary natural and social science since Galileo have discarded open appeals to formal and final causes to essential meaning and purpose as relevant to science. And instead mm -hmm. they've reduced everything to just like matter, force, and energy. Just like what is the thing and what causes the thing. So we just like have – we study cause and effect and we study the mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. And that's what encompasses everything there is to know about science and about like the world in modern yeah. science. Which part of it – I mean, that comes into some of the... Okay, it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, can't, is this part of what led to atheism, or is atheism part, what, part of what led to it? Or I guess, actually, it's more of the Enlightenment led to... If I can understand it purely through reason and it works on a rational level, I don't need God to explain why it works. I can just yeah. understand it intellectually, and it works fine, which I would argue is kind of the result of deism and then ultimately atheism mm -hmm. i can do it on my own i don't need god right and so then over time we just drop this concept of god existing really as a whole god doesn't play into this equation he if he exists yeah. he's like a watchmaker who wound it up and then left it sitting and doesn't mm -hmm. really do much with it yeah i think they even referenced the idea of the watchmaker thing they do um and like they even reference uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, who they term as a new atheist, which I'm a little bit confused about what that means as opposed to an old atheist <laughs> or a regular atheist. Um, but him saying like science is what works and what gets results. Yeah. Kind of is what you were like just saying, basically. Mm -hmm. But then that, that kind of leads into this. This idea they put over here a little bit later on. They said, Today, science education holds that to know something means knowing how to apply it, not how to justify it. Yeah. So we've gone from this idea of how did how did we get this thing? How does it work? What, what, where did it come from? To, well, okay, how can I use it? So it's kind of like we said last time with with geometry. You have the Pythagorean theorem which in Euclid's elements to get there, you've had to do a lot of work ahead of time to understand how do lines work? How do shapes relate to each other? How do angles relate on yeah. different planes? Versus now we go, well, we know A squared plus B squared equals C squared. 
I don't have to understand what that means. As long as I know the equation, I can plug in the numbers, and it works, and I don't have to care about that because somebody else has done the work for me. We know that it works. We know it's true. Who who cares about why? I don't have to explain why. Right. And he even goes on. He says, he says if you ask a student of science now to explain or justify his reason that he got there, he's mm-hmm. going to look at you in utter confusion. Yeah. Because he's not used to having to do that. He just goes, well, the equation works. Right. And, so, he, and he said something like, even if they do try and kind of give an explanation, it's normally like an appeal to authority, which is like the weakest form of an argument. <laughs> but even then he said their appeal to authority a lot of times is a textbook. Right. So it's not even like a good authority. <laughs> it's just this some like summation of here, memorize this is the end of yeah. the thing and you don't have to like understand why it does this or like how we got here. And the sad part is textbooks are updated every five minutes. So right. what you say is true now in two years is going to be possibly obsolete. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like this idea of justification is something that is super important and we probably haven't given enough time to discussing. Yeah. And this is just kind of my initial feeling about this because obviously I don't, I mean, I haven't studied this very uh, intensively yet, but I feel like the difference of justification and justifying what we know is one of the biggest, if not the primary difference between classical education and modern education. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I would would think that too. Mm -hmm. It's not just purely the, I know this and I can use it. It's, right. I, I know it, and I know why I know it, and I know where it came from, and I know yeah. what its broader implications are and how it fits in with the other things as right. well. Right, and like the context, kind of going back, like learning the history of the things yeah, and understanding that we're in the larger context of the history of humanity and God's creation and created order and like all of understanding all the different facets of existence. Yeah. It also makes me think and this... This may sound completely random to say it out loud, <laughs> but um, it, it makes me think in my mind of a conversation I was having with my roommate. We were saying, I believe something is true, and I, be- I believe what I believe is true, and if I didn't believe it was true, I wouldn't believe it. So for somebody to come up and say, well, you know that not everything you believe is true, I agree with that 100%, but I'm still going to believe everything I believe because I, I believe that what I believe is true I can't tell you which ones aren't true until somebody comes along and shows me where it's not true. Right. So it's instead of just taking something empiric, empirically from somebody else, well, this is true, you must memorize it now, walking through this, why do I believe what I believe? And then my entire understanding of reality doesn't fall apart if somebody comes along and reveals to me, oh, this understanding of this is completely wrong. The sun doesn't go around the earth. Okay. Yeah. If you can reveal to me that's not true, well, you've just you've just enlightened me. Yeah. <laughs> but there's almost this. I feel like with some people now, we're so tied to our perception of certain things because we don't know what how we got there, what it means for this to be true. That mm-hmm. if somebody were to come up and discover some new scientific discovery that contradicted scientific understanding to this point, their world would be rocked. Because they go, well, we just assumed that this was true. Because there was right. an equation for it. Oh, we don't know where the equation came from or why it works or how it works. But if it's not true anymore, then, well, now we're stuck. 
Mm-hmm. So that would be the difference of classical education, understanding what do we believe and why do we believe it? Where did it come from? How does it actually work with the natural order versus somebody who just memorizes facts in a textbook and equations and then tries to apply them? Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of our time for this week. Um, that that concludes as much as we're going to get through. By no far have we <laughs> yeah, encompassed everything of natural philosophy. But yeah. the next time we move on to moral philosophy and we'll look more into that and how it's similar and how it is different from the natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. The things it studies, the way it goes about doing it. But um, until then, uh, we'll have a... Uh, We'll have a synopsis up on the blog if you care to check that out. Until next time, thanks for listening. Take care.